I'm Mark Rees, and welcome to my curious podcast where, in each episode, I look at a different, weird, and wonderful subject. And for this episode, we'll be looking at a subject I love to hate. It's one of my favourite subjects, but it's also one of the most frustrating, and that is paranormal hoaxes. And for this episode, I've selected three long-lost ghost stories with which to illustrate this point. And they include my favourite ghost story ever, and that is a story I like to call the real-life Scooby-Doo, because it really does involve a ghost-hunting dog. There was a real-life dog who hunted ghosts, and I'll be telling you all about that soon. We'll also be looking at a particularly nasty ghost story, which gets a little bit unpleasant. But before we get into all the, the gory details of that case, let's start on a lighter note with a more comical ghost story. Although, when I say comical, I mean comical to us nowadays, looking back with hindsight, I am pretty sure it was not that comical for the man at the heart of this story at the time. Now, before we dive into the stories, I should explain why I love to hate these stories and what I mean by paranormal hoaxes. Well, the love-hate thing, quite often, when I research these old stories, they take place over many different newspapers, and the stories build and build and build. And what, what might happen, as an example, is you might find a really good ghost story in one newspaper. And then a week later, there's a follow-up, which makes it an even better ghost story. And then a week later, there's a second follow-up to make this the greatest ghost story ever known until a week later again, and they discover it was not a ghost. It was one big hoax conducted by some student running around with a, a pillowcase on their head or something, purely as an example. And that is why I love to hate these stories. They can be wonderful stories, but as somebody investigating supposedly real-life accounts of paranormal activity, they can also be very, let's, let, let's just say, they can make you want to scream at the top of your lungs in the archives at times. Although, I, sh I should stress, it hasn't reached that point. Uh, well, not, not yet. Anyway, that's enough of the downside. What exactly do I mean by paranormal hoaxes? Well, as you can probably guess from the name, it is people pretending to be ghosts when they are not. And so I don't mean people making mistakes. Maybe they hear a funny noise and they think it's ghosts and it turns out to be rats. I mean, that, that, that's not a hoax, that's, that's just a, a genuine mistake. A hoaxer is somebody who goes out of their way to pretend to be a ghost for all manner of reasons. These can be quite harmless, like kids messing around just to scare one of their mates. But in other cases, 
as with the tales that I am about to tell you, they can be quite nasty and vindictive and used as a means of committing a crime. You could disguise yourself as a ghost to attack someone, to rob someone. And I think the best example, or certainly the most famous example of somebody impersonating a supernatural creature for these reasons would be Springheeled Jack, who terrorised Victorian London and the surrounding area by popping up late at night to terrify usually women as they walked home alone after dark. And while he was considered to be a man of flesh and blood, he had certain abilities people assumed must be supernatural in nature. And as such, this mythology sprung up around him and before long he was breathing fire and flying over the rooftops with these, these Batman-type wings. And the more famous he became, the more he began to spread those Batman-like wings around Great Britain. He was no longer restricted to the southeast of England. He was heading northwards, up into Scotland, and he headed west, which included many a sighting in Wales, enough to fill an entire separate podcast just on the Welsh spring Jack sightings. And while we can say with almost certainty that all of these reports were not the same spring Jack, even if he was supernatural, there, there, there was no way he could be haunting in, in Scotland and in London and in Aberystwyth at the same time. Nevertheless, if it was not sprung Jack, somebody was out there committing these crimes. Although when I say crimes, they were not all of the same level and severity. Some of these hoaxers were purely out for a laugh. Youngsters, teenagers, messing around who wanted to fool people. And quite a notorious case from the 19th century took place in Wrexham Cemetery, which was closed at night, but a group of kids managed to jump over the wall and they worked out if they lit matches underneath the heads of the statues of the angels and the cherubs in there, it would look like something supernatural from a distance. And this resulted in people gathering outside the cemetery to look at the ghosts who were, who were flickering about. And while these kinds of reports are technically criminal, the, the, the children or the, the young adults in this case were indeed apprehended, they effectively got away with a, you know, a slap on the wrists and a, and a, a don't do it again. But there were many more people out there in Wales and further afield who were impersonating ghosts for much more sinister reasons. And as mentioned, as with spring Jack, this could be to scare someone out of their wits at night. It could be to rob someone, to attack someone, or, as in the case of our first Victorian ghost story, to burgle somebody. Now, this story I originally came across while researching my book, Ghosts of Wales, Accounts from the Victorian Archives. And as much as I like it, it didn't make 
the final cut of the book. I actually preferred it to some of the stories which did make it into the book, but just like I'm sure you've heard your uh, favourite directors talking about uh, having to cut their favourite scenes from films, that was very much the case with the book. I had to chop some stories out for balance, otherwise it would have been a book just full of hoaxes. But nevertheless, you get to hear it now, and this is an exclusive in a way, a bit of a DVD extra, if you will, if we carry on the film analogy. And it begins when a man wakes up one night to find somebody or something rummaging through his personal belongings in the desk next to his bed. Now, this man is still half asleep, and he sees what what appears to be somebody covered in a white sheet standing there. Now, spoiler alert, it is indeed somebody standing there with a white sheet over them. It is a burglar. But the man doesn't really twig this in his half-awake state. And so he says to this ghost, or burglar, who are you? To which the ghost... Oh, but, but let, let, let's call it ghost. We all know it's a burglar, but let's call it ghost for convenience. To which the ghost said, Ooh, I'm a ghost. Or something similar. I mean, I, I don't I don't know what a, a burglar impersonating a ghost really sounds like, but I imagine it's it's pretty close to that. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, who in their right mind would would believe this? But Let's give this man something of the benefit of the doubt. He was half asleep. He'd just woken up. It was the 19th century. And I, look, I, I don't know. I'm just I'm trying to make excuses for him. But he believed the ghost. And he, burglar. And he said, what do you want? To which the ghost replied, Ooh, I'm, I'm here to show you where your fortune is. And the man said, great, great lead the way. And so, that ghost slash burglar walked out into this man's back garden, leading the way to point to a spot where this man's fortune was supposedly buried. Now, I'm not going to repeat myself totally here, but if you've listened to my previous podcast about a ghost to rival Hamlet's father, you'll know about uh, the Victorian beliefs about how they expected ghosts to have some useful purpose. And that was very much the case here, where this man, rather than just thinking the ghost was was lost or just wandering around, he, he was hoping this ghost had a practical purpose, a message to convey. And so when it pointed at that spot in the ground, he picked up a shovel and began to dig in his own garden in the middle of the night in search of buried treasure because a ghost told him to do so. I appreciate that by this point it's getting harder and harder to give this man the benefit of the doubt. Nevertheless, he still thinks this is a ghost, so ju- just just go with it for now. Now, with the man's back turned, digging away in the garden, the ghost thought this would be a great time to make a sharp exit. And he jumped 
over the garden wall and legged it down the road as fast as he could run. And he might have gotten away with it as well, until the man who was digging away turned around and he could see this ghost running away into the darkness. And the, the light bulb above the head moment, the moment he realised something wasn't quite right, is when he looked at that ghost running and he saw that white sheet blowing in the wind and at the bottom of that sheet he saw a pair of workman's boots. And he thought to himself, hang on a minute, ghosts don't wear workman's boots. That, that, that can't be a real ghost. It took a while, but the penny had finally dropped. With that, he set off after the ghost. Now, the ghost was quite easy to catch because he was dressed in a, a white sheet covering his entire body. And so the man caught up with him quite quickly, pounced on the ghost, and they had a bit of a, a wrestling match, a bit of a kerfuffle on the floor. As a result, somebody called the police and, ironically, arrested the man who was being burgled for attacking a ghost. Or for attacking a man dressed as a ghost, at least. Now, most of my stories from the Victorian period, I dig out from newspapers and magazines and journals and things from the time. But occasionally, you get a case like this, which does go to court, and there are court records to accompany it. And it, it was pretty much split 50-50, because while the burglar was clearly in the wrong, they had a very difficult job keeping a straight face and believing this man could possibly be this stupid. Nevertheless, yes, he was, and that is our first example of the kind of people pretending to be ghosts in the Victorian age. Now, the next story is a much nastier affair, and it's a good example of how the tables were occasionally turned, and rather than the criminals themselves pretending to be ghosts, they actually blamed other people for being ghosts as an excuse to attack and persecute them. Now, while I try and keep things light and fluffy, there's no getting away from the fact that there were some nasty pieces of work patrolling the streets at this time, and we have to look at everything that was going on. On the plus side, if you are of a squirmish disposition, this is a nice short story, and it will be followed by my favourite ghost story ever, 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 ever. But first, let us go back to 1892, to Barry in the Vale of Glamorgan, specifically to Caddickston, where a gang of would-be ghost hunters were out and about looking for ghosts to bust, with bust being the operative word here. They were not looking to detect ghosts. They weren't walking around with some Victorian PKE meter or something. The only equipment they had with them was alcohol, and they wanted to bust some heads, some ghostly heads, ideally. And it just so happened that there was a suspected haunted house in the area, which was the perfect place for them all to gather 
and congregate and look for a ghost. And a ghost to them did not mean the spirit of a deceased person, maybe. A ghost meant somebody they wanted to beat up for whatever reason it might be. They could say that they genuinely thought this real person was a ghost. That person is a hoaxer. Let's sort them out. And call it bad timing, or maybe they had their target in mind beforehand. But when they saw a Mrs. Mary Ann Carroll walking out and about just after midnight, right outside the haunted house, they accused her of being that ghost herself. Now, this gang consisted of nine men and or boys, and there must have been at least one woman there, because the main ringleaders in the assault were said to be a married couple. And what I'm going to do next is read to you some direct quotes from the newspaper covering the events at the time, because this case did indeed go to court, where all the gory details were revealed. Now, it all kicked off when the man, the male half of that married couple, spotted that poor woman, walked up to her, put his hand in her face and said, Stand back, you ghost. Then he and his wife struck her, after which she was beaten badly and, inverted commas, blinded and choked her with blood. If that wasn't enough, he threatened to blow her brains out, and then she was thrown to the ground and again abused. Now, some of the other gang members also appeared in court. They, they tried to defend the couple, which didn't really work. You know, I mean, they, they were trying to argue they, they were provoked, but no, they were found guilty. And hopefully, having been made to pay the price for their actions, they learnt their lesson, and the streets in and around Barry were a little bit safer afterwards. And that is the nastier story of the trio. All of which brings us to my favourite ghost story ever, the real-life Scooby-Doo. Now, I do need to give you some background to this tale to explain exactly why I love this story so much. When I first pitched the idea of Ghosts of Wales accounts from the Victorian archives to my publisher, I had never published any paranormal books before that. Up until then, my books were about Welsh culture and things. And so I really had to go for it and convince them it was worth taking a shot and allowing me to write a book about ghosts, which would go on to be a multi-million seller and make them rich beyond their wildest dreams, which hasn't quite happened yet. But they didn't hold that against me, and I've been very lucky to be able to publish several more books on the subject since those early days. And you never know, maybe one day an obscure book about long-lost Welsh ghost stories might smash its way into the New York Times bestsellers list. Stranger things have happened. But nevertheless, back 
then I was an unknown and I really had to sell the book. And one of the ways I used to convince them was I said, look, some of these stories that I found in the Victorian archives sound like an episode of a Scooby-Doo cartoon. Now, what I meant by that is that some of these stories are quite funny. They're not all about scaring people. Some of them are quite comical, like the one we started with about the burglar. That's quite a funny story. And that is what I meant when I said some of these stories sound like an episode of a Scooby-Doo cartoon. I did not mean that there was literally a gang of pesky kids driving around in a 60s camper van in 19th century Wales, pulling masks off bad guys. Anyway, to cut a long story short, they said yes, which was fantastic of them. I started writing the book and I went looking for ghost stories in the archives. And when I found this story, I punched the air. I was so happy with myself. But I should tell you the story really before I start talking about how happy it made me. Now, this is yet another Victorian ghost story, and it takes place at the other end of Wales this time. We're heading north up to a little village called Rosset, which is now a part of Wrexham County Borough, and it's just a stone's throw from the English border right up in the northeast of Wales. Now, at the time, Rosset was being terrorised by a ghost and one of the problems the residents of Rosset had with this ghost is that there was no artificial lighting at the time. There were no street lights for them to turn on. And as such, this ghost could scare people and just disappear into the darkness like that. That was my first special effect for the episode, and I have another very nice one coming up soon. But back to the story. The people of Rosset could not catch this ghost. It was too dark. And as such, it could just pop up, scare someone, and disappear before they had a chance to do anything about it. But they began to get wise to this ghost. They started to keep their wits about them when they left home after dark. Now, on one particular night, a man was cycling home when this ghost popped up and went, Boo! Um, well, I don't actually know what the ghost said exactly. Um, he, he probably said boo, but he definitely popped up, though. He popped up and scared the man who fell off his bike. But as mentioned, the locals in Rosset were starting to get wise to this ghost. And one man in particular was ready and waiting with a gun with which to shoot this ghost. Now, I'm going to repeat that quickly because it caught me unaware as well when I first read it. This man was armed with a gun to shoot the ghost with. And yes, there are several accounts of ghosts being shot by guns. In Wales, it never ended too tragically, but... In England, there are, there are, there's at least one case I know of where somebody did tragically die as a result of this. But certainly in Wales, there were no deaths. But this man did indeed point his gun at the ghost, shot a bullet. Yes, 
that was my second big special effect for the episode. And just in case you didn't get it, yes, it was the sound of a gunshot and a special prize to anyone who can guess which objects I used to create that sound effect. It really is like uh, the archers on here at the moment. I'll have rain effects and things coming up soon. But anyway, back to the story. That bullet, fortunately for the ghost, missed its target and allowed the ghost to do its usual disappearing act of running off into the darkness, into the cover of the trees. However, this time, when that bullet went off, there was a dog next to the man. And when that gun was fired, it startled the dog, and the dog chased into the forest after that ghost. And the first real inclination the people of Rosset had that this ghost was not paranormal in nature is when that dog bit the ghost's leg and the ghost went ow before falling to the ground which allowed them to do the whole ripping off the mask unveiling the villain and catching the real flesh and blood ghost that it really was and the reason I love that story so much as you've probably already worked out yourselves, is that it really did contain a real-life ghost-hunting dog just like Scooby-Doo. After telling my publisher that some of these stories were like an episode of Scooby-Doo, I really had found a dog that hunted ghosts. And as you can tell by the fact that I'm still going on about it years later, I'm still feeling quite <laughs> pleased myself for having found that long-lost ghost story. All of which brings us to the end of the third and final ghost story in this episode, which leaves me to ask, as usual, what you think about those stories. Do you have your own opinion on what may or may not have been going on back in Victorian Wales? Or better yet, do you know of any other real-life ghost-hunting dogs, be they in Wales or anywhere in the world? If so, I would love to hear from you. Track me down on social media. It's quite easy to do. Just do a search for Mark Reese and put the word ghosts in or Wales or something, and I'll pop up on top. Or drop me an email direct from the website. And again, who knows, maybe... If we get enough new stories, we can make yet another follow-up episode of crazy hoaxes pretending to be ghosts. And if you have enjoyed this episode, here's the obligatory shout-out to please consider hitting the subscribe button. That way you'll, you'll never miss an episode ever, and it'll put a big smile on my face because I know I'm not sitting here talking to myself. All of which just leaves me to say, thank you very much for listening. Dioch and Varian, and if you are indeed a ghost hunter yourself, maybe now you'll consider taking the dog for a walk at the same time. Nostar. No